in 2020, the out-of-sight, out-of-mind attitude to older Australians has had deadly consequences. By the end of Australia's second wave in October 2020, there had been about 2,000 COVID-19 cases and 680 deaths in residential aged care, mostly in Victoria, accounting for 75% of Australia's COVID-19 death toll. This rate of deaths in residential care is much higher than many comparable countries. Back in October of this year, we discussed the rights of older Australians on the podcast and Grattan's proposed rights-based framework for reforming the aged care system. It's all well and good to say we believe in the rights for older Australians, but how do we practically implement a rights-based system? And that's the question we're going to tackle on today's podcast. I'm Kat Clay, Head of Digital Communications, and with me today is Annika Stobart, Associate with the Health Programme, who is back with a new report on aged care, and it's called Reforming Aged Care, a Practical Plan for a Rights-Based System, which proposes a very bold $7 billion package of reforms to the aged care system. Welcome, Annika. Good to be here. So at the moment, aged care in Australia is divided into three main programs. We've got residential aged care, the Home Care Packages Program, and the Commonwealth Home Support Program. The majority of funding is going into residential aged care. But what I want to know from you is what this funding imbalance has to do with the rights for older Australians. Correct, Cad. So as you said, Australia's aged care system currently has three main streams. So about 200,000 people are in residential care, which costs the government $13 billion in 2018-19, which are the latest official figures we have. About 140,000 are receiving home care, which is a higher level support at home, including personal care, which costs $2.5 $2.5 billion in 2018-19, and then there are a large group of 840,000 Australians receiving home support, which is more of the entry-level support program, providing meals at home, cleaning and gardening, and some personal care too. And that cost $2.6 billion in 2018-19. So although this is a lot of money, it doesn't actually reflect the true cost of supporting the needs of older Australians. This is because the government constrains costs through capping the system, meaning the government supports only a certain number of people in home care and residential care at a given time. This means many older Australians are left without the support they need. And as a result, people end up in residential care when home care would have been better for them and potentially cheaper for taxpayers as well. For example, in home care, cap funding means many people don't receive the level of care they need or not at all. There's about 100,000 people languishing on waiting lists, which makes up nearly half of the people that are assessed to get support under that program. So a rights-based system means that older Australians should be guaranteed care that they need to be independent and engaged as much as possible. It's about empowering and listening to what older Australians want and need, and then designing a system to help achieve that. And in many cases, older Australians want to receive support at home and not go into residential care. Over the last 20 years or so, residential care facilities have increasingly moved away from being a lifestyle choice in a retirement living situation to a more high-level care facilities in larger-scale settings. 
So but this preference is not reflected uh, in the numbers I just set out earlier, where most funding goes to residential care and more people are in residential care than are receiving home care. This does not mean everyone should receive support at home. There is still a place for residential care for people with high needs, but many more should be supported at home. And it's not just a matter of funding, it's really a matter of life or death. I found this quote absolutely shocking from the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety, which is also included in our report. We have been alarmed to find that many people die while waiting for a home care package. Others prematurely move into residential care. By any measure, this is a cruel and discriminatory system which places great strain on older Australians and their relatives. It sounds to me that we're trying to fit older Australians into a one-size-fits-all solution with sometimes deadly results. When an older Australian needs assistance, Annika, how do you propose we should approach it instead? Yeah, so not only is the system underfunded, but the funding models for each program are very different and no longer fit for purpose. So, for example, Funding for home care classes people into broad funding classifications based on an assessment of need, but given there are only four programs, it cannot cater for people's specific and diverse needs. So this has led to problems where huge amounts of money, now amounting to $1 billion that has been uh, allocated in home care, actually just sitting around unspent. And in residential care, perversely, providers undertake the funding assessment which coupled with an underfunded system means providers are incentivized to overclassify and undersurface. As a consequence, carer staff are underpaid and not well supported. So under our proposed rights-based system, we believe older Australians who need support should have universal access to care. Just like Medicare and the NDIS, access to aged care should be based on need, not on people's capacity to pay. To achieve this, We propose that funding for all aged care services should match a person's individual care needs. And to implement this, we propose that people's service needs should be documented in individual support plans, which then form a contract about what care the person should receive. The support plan should reflect the person's specific goals and aspirations and design a service model that works for them and empowers them to have agency. So this should better cater for people's diverse care needs and allow more people to receive care at home. But universality should only extend to care services such as nursing that are reasonable and necessary under our model. So that ensures that taxpayer money is spent efficiently and that means that we're saying non-care services such as cleaning or gardening, some of which are currently paid by government, should instead be means tested. So this approach gives the older person autonomy, supports them to have self-determination and entitles them to care. I really appreciate your passion for this particular topic. I think it's something that we all can feel quite sympathetic to because, you know, we've all got grandparents or, or friends who are older Australians and we know people who, who these decisions affect. So, Annika, now one of the essential parts of implementing personalised plans is having well-trained staff to do it and you're proposing new standards and workplace reform in the aged care sector. Can you take us through those recommendations? There should be much higher standards in the aged care system and this must go hand in hand with better funding for aged care. So to date, we've had poor regulation and a badly designed funding system resulting in 
poorly trained and low-paid and partly casualized workforce. And although staff are highly motivated, staffing models don't allow them to do their best because owners often give priority to getting costs down and profits up rather than raising the quality of services and care. Australia has poor aged care staffing levels compared to other countries. Recent research found that more than half of Australian's aged care facilities have unacceptable levels of staffing and only 1.3% have staffing levels that are considered best practice. The quality of care and support received by older Australians depends critically on the quality of the care and staff. So we propose a national registration scheme for carer staff should be established to mandate training and foster a culture of excellence and peer review. The registration should mandate minimum and ongoing training and development. A national training framework should be developed that individuals must be registered against. Different levels of registration and opportunities to increase skills should then embed a career structure for carer staff, and this should be adequately reflected in a higher pay scale. And not only should the system get these basics right, such as better pay, better training, better career structure, there should be minimum staffing ratios and 24-hour nursing supervision. And on top of this, it needs to shift to a rights-based care approach. So this means that there should be a requirement for all providers to have a dedicated human rights framework embedded into their organisation. And all staff, not just the carer staff, should be specifically trained in rights-based care. So, Annika, this year we've seen the terrible consequences of what happens when aged care is understaffed and the staff are underpaid. Is it too optimistic to expect that staff conditions will be lifted in the aged care industry? Yes, the COVID crisis exposed serious workforce problems alongside other problems in the system. The virus primarily spread to aged care facilities through aged care workers and because staff are often in insecure roles and poorly paid and therefore work in more than one facility, Many workers had no or insufficient sick leave entitlements. Some aged care workers spread at COVID to facilities while sick or waiting for test results. And problematically, no one body, whether that be the Commonwealth responsible for aged care, the state responsible for public health, or providers responsible for residents, took responsibility. And in particular, the surge workforce planning fell through the cracks leaving some residential facilities with barely any staff and residents with little or no care. I think the exposure of the issues around COVID and the Royal Commission are both catalysts for change. There is a huge amount of advocacy pushing for change on the workforce front, and it's in everyone's interests. Older people want better care and also providers want more staff if it goes alongside better funding. Recent efforts to address workforce issues, including through the recent 2018 aged care workforce strategy, hasn't had much success to date. And I think too that it's being highlighted in the Royal Commission, but part of your proposal too is to enshrine these rules in law. And you're not very ambitious at all, but you're actually proposing a new Aged Care Act. And I'm wondering what it should do differently to our current act, the 1997 Aged Care Act. Yes, we have been very ambitious with our report. When we first uh, started writing it, we realised actually how much change was needed in the aged care system. And so we really needed to start from scratch and go from bottom up to think what the new system should look like as a whole. So this requires many changes. Essentially, what we're proposing is that the current legislation does not ensure proper governance or regulation. Despite the so-called aged care standards, 
poor care slips through gaping holes in the accountability system. And this is partly due to poor standards and lax compliance efforts, but also to the centralisation of accountability. And at its core, the current Act sets out an old-school ration-based system that focuses on the transactional relationships between government and aged care providers, rather than a system that focuses on delivering for vulnerable older Australians it is meant to support. So a new Aged Care Act is firstly needed to set in stone the rights-based system with rights enshrined in both the object and the body of the Act, and the new Act needs to also implement our new funding and governance model. So I've spoken a bit about the funding model through individual support plans, but the system also needs a new governance and accountability model. The current governance approach is overly centralised and has failed to prevent the abuse and neglect of older Australians in the aged care system. We propose a national system steward that sets the performance and regulatory framework for the whole system, then with regional system managers operating the system and advocating for older Australians. So even with state offices, the existing Canberra-focused system is too remote to hold providers to account. So under the Grattan model, independent regional system managers would provide a much-needed personal touch. They would look providers in the eye and make them directly accountable for the provider's recommendations about care. And regional system managers would also coordinate and negotiate access to services for older Australians, including help develop and review support plans. They would monitor the system in the region, oversee providers and commission new services where there is a gap in the market. And they would also help coordinate and integrate non-age care services, including healthcare. So this more decentralised governance structure should help uphold the rights of older Australians. National rights-based quality standards would be set and enforced with an additional focus on ensuring providers deliver services according to people's individual support plans. And to enhance the voice of older Australians, community representative committees in each region should be established that are connected to a national body and working with regional system managers, they should enhance the independence of older people through social participation programs and also promoting healthy ageing. One of the concerns with the current funding model is that it encourages aged care providers to gain the system by padding out administrative fees. What checks and balances would you put in place to ensure the system wasn't played for profit? That is a good question. Strong accountability and transparency is absolutely key and something that the current system is really lacking. So the current system uses the language of the market and choice, but actually there is weak regulation which creates an environment where for-profits can make large profits and some do. And increased transparency is also fundamental. The aged care system is nowhere near transparent enough to the point where the government does not have good knowledge of services provided to older Australians and whether taxpayer funds are actually spent on care. Because our model only proposes that government pay for care, providers can compete on the non-care services which would be means-tested. These are the costs for everyday living expenses people ordinarily pay, such as meals and cleaning, and includes board and lodging if they are in residential care. But to avoid any supernormal profits being made on care funding of older people, there should be a regulated cap on the rate of return made on these board and lodging fees. After all, this is a care industry, supporting some of the most vulnerable people in our society, so there should be a limit on the amount of profit that should be made. It's hard to disagree with making life better for older Australians. 
But the cost is a concern. Your proposal would cost an extra $7 billion. Isn't that a lot of money in a recession? Wouldn't that be better spent in getting young unemployed people back to work? Yes, it is a lot of money, but we argue it is necessary. We cannot continue leaving older Australians without support. And in fact, Australia spends less on aged care per GDP, about 1.2%, compared to other comparable countries like the Netherlands and Sweden with high-functioning aged care systems who spend about 3 to 5% of their GDP on aged care. Under our model, universal coverage for care services will require a significant boost to aged care spending. So the $7 billion represents about a 35% increase in government expenditure on aged care. But we believe increased government spending on aged care is necessary to ensure older Australians have equitable access to care and support. We have also indicated in our model some of the Additional costs could be offset by users directly through our more rational approach to means testing. On top of that, some of the financial load will be eased by the stimulus effect of investing in aged care. Government spending in care industries creates jobs and helps reduce female economic disadvantage. We estimate this could amount to about 70,000 new jobs, with these jobs spread over more than 70,000 people because most who work in aged care work part-time. 70,000 jobs are, is a lot of jobs and, and potentially you never know whether you could actually be getting young people, encouraging young people to get into aged care as a career if the system was reformed. And the other thing is, you know, Grattan likes to make arguments backed up by facts and science and everything, but in the end, ethically, it's the right thing to do. I think these horror stories in the Royal Commission are enough to to shake anyone's heart and it feels like the right thing to do to reform aged care after reading some of those horror stories. Finally, I want to end on a positive note. I want to end on what is the first step? Where do we start with this plan for reform? Yes, so we acknowledge that much-needed transformational change will not, indeed should not, occur overnight. Aged care is a big industry and big changes are needed introducing much better governance, a new rights-based approach to care planning and support, revised funding and recruiting and training staff will take time. So we recommend the new system should be introduced in three stages over three years between 2021 and 2023, with a fourth stage of review scheduled for 2025. But some changes can be introduced quickly. The first priority must be older Australians who are waiting for care and people in care who are at risk of poor staffing and oversight. So we recommend specific measures to address those in the initial year. And we argue it should first start with a trial in South Australia and Tasmania and then the whole transition overseen by an aged care transition authority. But in the end, we acknowledge that transforming the system, although the practical steps can be taken in the short term, it will take the longer term cultural shift over time to really embed this new way of thinking about aged care based on supporting and enhancing the rights of older Australians. Thank you, Annika. And it is an excellent report that's available to read for free on our website if you go to our homepage at grattan.edu.au. I'd just like to thank you, Annika, for being on our podcast again. Uh, I know you're really passionate about aged care and it's something that we all may eventually face, the choices about uh, residential or home care, and it's something that we really need to look into and reform in Australia. 
Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to continue the conversation about aged care or any of our research online, you can find us at Grattan Inst on Twitter and Grattan Institute on social media. And before you go, Grattan Institute is a non-profit organisation and it's coming into December, that time of year where we do talk to people about whether you could make a financial contribution to Grattan's research and your donations help keep us going, help keep this podcast going and help keep us trying to change Australian policy. So we'd really appreciate if you go to grattan.edu.au forward slash donate and consider making a donation there. As always, thanks so much for listening and take care. 